we come to our next uh, section in public worship, and we're going to talk today about public prayer and also public praise or singing praise uh, to God uh, in, in our series. So we're going to read together from 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 today. And uh, this is of, uh, in the middle of uh, the telling us about the, the reign of, of good King Jehoshaphat, who reigned over Judah, the son of David, um, who rules over uh, God's people in the southern kingdom. And this is what we read beginning in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. And from all the assemblies of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness, of Jeruel, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, of the Kohathites and of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. 
And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord and your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil, it was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray quickly together and ask God to, to teach us uh, this morning. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open the scriptures, that your Son would take the bread of life and break it for each of us today and take uh, this limited message that we can have in, in a limited amount of time, but it would be multiplied in his hand. For Christ's sake, amen. So we've been looking at what God's word tells us about worship. We've looked at the different ways in which worship uh, takes place, whether privately, publicly, family worship, We've also, uh, Pastor Tim has done a, a good job of showing us how worship, it really takes the form of a dialogue. In other words, it's a conversation between God and his people. God speaks to us, and then we respond. God speaks to us, and then we respond. And God speaks to us in a few ways. He speaks to us through the reading of God's word, which we've just done. He speaks to us whenever that word is then explained and preached and taught upon faithfully. He teaches us in baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are kind of like visible illustrations, visible ways that God teaches us what salvation looks like and teaches us even how it's received and what we do. But then in response to that, we respond back to God when God speaks to us. And two of these ways that we do this are what we're gonna talk about today. First of all, in public prayer, and in public singing, or we're going to use praise so we can keep the P's uh, together. Uh, prayer and praise. This is what we do, and we, we see uh, examples and commands of this in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament as well, that this is a basic facet, a basic component of what it means to worship God. God speaks to us, and we respond back to him in prayer and in praise. And this passage 
in, one, in 2 Chronicles uh, 20 is a good illustration, I think, of how both of these components come together in a public worship service whenever all of God's people are assembled here uh, for church in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20. So let's dive into this passage and see what it has to say to us about prayer and praise, but also then how are they connected to each other because they can never be separated. Well, in verses one and two, we first of all have a problem, don't we? We have a big problem because King Jehoshaphat is a good king. You you might know that many of the kings of Judah are not good kings. They're not good guys. But Jehoshaphat is a good guy. He tries to follow the Lord. He tries to walk in the footsteps of David. He tries to uh, bring about reforms to see that the people of God are taught God's word, that they're walking in line with God's word. And he's a godly king. But what happens in verses 1 and 2 is, is pretty scary stuff. We're told that the enemies of God's people, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Maunites, are coming against Jehoshaphat for battle. They want to attack him. And it's not a small group of people, is it? We're told it's a multitude. The same word is used later on to say it's a horde of people. It's, a, it's this giant stampede of an enemy getting ready to, to come into your land and take over the country. And they're scared to death. They say a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. And they're in uh, Hezazon Tamar in, in Gedi. So this is a pretty dire situation. And you can imagine what it must have felt like if you're God's people, whenever all of the enemies uh, all around you are getting set to pounce upon you and attack you. And you know you're outnumbered. You know that the the power of your enemies is greater than than you can withstand. And so you can imagine the fear that comes upon Jehoshaphat and upon his people. In verses 3 through 4, we see Jehoshaphat's initial reaction to this. We're told, first of all, he's afraid. He's afraid. He's scared, and rightfully so. But what does he do? And this is very important. We all get afraid. We all get scared. The question is, is how should we respond? In the Old Testament, before this, there had been a king named Saul, the first king that God ever gave over Israel. And whenever he was afraid, do you know what he did? He sinned. He sinned. His fear led him to do something that God had told him not to do. But here, what does Jehoshaphat do? He's afraid. And so as the leader, as the king of God's people... He sets his face, we're told, to seek the Lord. And that's the first thing I want to talk about here in verses 3 through 12 about prayer in response to this problem they're faced with is prayer. Prayer is seeking God for what we need. Seeking God in his face for what we need. Jehoshaphat, as the king, is going to seek the Lord, and he proclaims a fast throughout all Judah. He says the whole country, the whole people, all of Judah, not simply part of it, the whole country, we need to set our minds and our hearts together to seek the Lord because we cannot defeat these enemies on our own. We see what Judah does whenever Jehoshaphat does this. Judah assembles. They gather together. They congregate to seek help from the Lord. 
and from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, this is very interesting. Notice they get together, they assemble. Jehoshaphat doesn't simply say, listen, everyone, wherever you're at, just pray wherever you're at and stay where you're at, and we'll all pray together in our own places. What does he say to do? We need to get together. We need to assemble the people of God. We need to encourage each other. This is a church gathering. And similarly for you and me today, God doesn't, it would be one thing for us to simply pray in our homes, and I hope you do pray in your home, and I hope you pray with your children and you pray alone, but that's not enough. Whenever serious trials come against God's people here, their first instinct is to say, we need to get together. Is that our first instinct? Do we think, we need to get the church together. And you see this happening in the early church too, don't you? Whenever persecution happens, what do they do? They get together. They say, we need to seek God's face together. And similarly, that's what they do. They assemble to seek help, aid from the Lord, and they do it unitedly with one heart and one soul and one mind. Well, we see what this prayer looks like then whenever they get together. Notice they, they do it in an assembly, and that's what we do as well every Sunday. We assemble together, and we gather together for corporate prayer. Now, like Jehoshaphat is about ready to do, we usually only have one person whose voice you hear uh, because we, we, we pray unitedly, but I trust that all of Judah and all of you are individually in your hearts joining that one prayer to the throne of grace as we seek God together. In verse five, Jehoshaphat stands in the church in the assembly of, of Judah and Jerusalem. He's in the house of the Lord before the new court. This is quite the scene. The king is here. He's in the midst of the throng of God's people, all gathered together to seek his face in the temple that God had told them to build, in the temple that God had, had had Solomon build and David store materials for, the temple where God had put his name and he then leads in prayer for God's people. And this is a beautiful prayer that he prays beginning in verse six. In verses six through nine, he particularly emphasizes in prayer, and this is what we pray every week. First of all, you alone are our God. That's the first thing we do in prayer when we seek his face. We tell God and we look to him and we say, you alone, no one else are not simply God, but you're our God. You're ours. He says uh, in verse six, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And you can imagine Jehoshaphat with his hands out and his eyes looking to heaven. He, let me paraphrase this prayer, something for you. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are you not God in heaven? You rule you reign, you control all the kingdoms of the nations. Every single one is under your command. In your hand are power and might. You are strong. There is no one that is able to stand against you. And you are our God, the same God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people of Israel, the same God who gave it to us, the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And your people have lived here they built a sanctuary for you, for your name. And on that day, they said, if disaster of any kind comes upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will come here in this place and we will stand before this same house and before you 
because your name, your presence is in this house. And we will cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. You are our God. All the eyes of God's people are turned right away, away from the problem, away from themselves, away from each other, and together their eyes are directed to God and say, you're not simply the God of the heavens, you're not simply the God of the universe, but you're ours. You belong to us. And that's what they're doing. First of all, you are our God. Secondly, we need you. In verses 10 through 11, we, you're our God, but we need you now. Uh, he says this, and right now, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, the same people you would not uh, let Israel invade when they came from the land of God, the same people Israel avoided and did not destroy, those same people are now rewarding us by coming to drive us out of your possession, the possession you gave us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them for this? So right away they're saying, listen God, you are our God and there is no other and we need you now. Look what our enemies are doing to us. Look what they're attacking us with. Look how strong they are. We need you. But then thirdly, they talk about, they talk about their God, they talk about our need, but then they also mention their powerlessness. In verse 12, a beautiful verse. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling, but I don't know what to do. I feel powerless. I feel without strength and without wisdom and without smarts. I feel lacking but my eyes are turned to you. That's where they're at. In prayer, this is very important. You know the reason we pray in service? Because we don't have it all figured out. And we pray in service because we come to this church as still as sinners, still lacking, still in need, still guilty, still shamed, We have sicknesses. We have problems in our lives and in our families. And he's our God. And he invites us to come to him with those. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, Maybe you had this uh, today. You've had a problem where maybe maybe you've had a, uh, a difficult week. Maybe something really bad is going on in your life or in your family. Maybe a sickness or financial struggles or family struggles. Or maybe you've sinned. You won't tell other people about it, but you are kind of embarrassed about it in your own heart. And you think, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go to church today. I think I'm going to stay home today. Church is the place to bring your needs, not to keep them away from God. Sometimes we, we say, you know, whenever I come to church as well, we say, we leave all our burdens out there. No, we don't. We bring them all right here and we lay them in prayer at his feet. 
We cast our cares upon the Lord because he is sufficient and able and cares for us. I hope you bring every single burden you have this week to God in prayer. I hope you you bring every single one, load them up, throw them on him. His strong arms and shoulders are able to bear all of it. We read in Mark chapter one, verses 32 through 34, that after Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, we read this, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, talking about Jesus, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You see, whenever you come to church, whenever you pray at home, but especially whenever you come here, we bring all our diseases, spiritual, physical, all of our struggles, all the things we're ashamed of, all of our guilt, the fight in the car on the way to church, and we bring it to him, and he heals us all. He takes it all upon himself. Now, he may not do it the way that we think he should, but he promises to. So we bring all of us, bring it all. Bring your hard heart, bring everything you've got that is bad, and Jesus has power to cleanse it and to make it new. Bring it all. That's what prayer is, we look to our God We look to our need, we confess our need, but we also confess our powerlessness. We confess the fact that we cannot change ourselves, we can't change other people, we can't change our situations, but Christ has changed our situation 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross and made peace with us and God. Bring it all to him. But then we see what happens immediately after that. Here we, we see it's kind of a pathetic figure. And I think the, the reason verses 13 is given there as well is to highlight just how vulnerable God's people look right now. It says, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And here's Judah, the, right? This great military might is coming against him. And who's gathered together in the temple? Well, even the children, even the women, the people that might be the most vulnerable are here standing before the Lord. And here they are, here's God's people and all of their vulnerability and all of their powerlessness represented even by the people who are there praying to God. But what happens? As soon as they pray and the spirit of the Lord, verse 14, came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. In other words, just some random Levite Some random guy, a Levite, who's standing in the assembly in this church gathering, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit of God comes upon him in the midst of the church and he says, God speaks through him. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. The first thing he proclaims is, Comfort, comfort. So we've got prayer, and right after that comes the promise, the gospel, a promise of comfort. Don't be afraid, right? How often in the Bible does God open up his word to people with those words, don't be afraid, fear not, 
Christmas, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Fear not. And here, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. The battle is not yours, but God's. God has promised to take care of you, and God will fight this battle alone against your enemies. He promises right away a message of comfort. It's a comforting promise. But second of all, it's a promise of salvation. He says, tomorrow, you go ahead. Go on down against them. They're going to come up at this way, the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And then he says this, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. This sounds a lot like what Moses told Israel at the Red Sea. Do you remember what they said then? Is this why you brought us out of Egypt? So that we could die here? And God, Moses says to them, stand firm, hold fast basically, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work on your behalf today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. Similarly here, God is about to accomplish a new act of redemption for his people. Stand firm, hold your position, and you're gonna see the Lord rescue you today and the Lord alone. A message of salvation. No matter how weak they were, no matter how uh, seemingly puny they were, no matter how powerless they were, they had a powerful God. They had a God who could do all exceedingly above all we could ever ask or think. So he promises them salvation, but then he also promises them his presence. He says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. He closes again with that bracketing promise of comfort. Tomorrow I'll go out against them and the Lord will be with you. My presence will go with you. He is our Emmanuel, our God with us. God promises them comfort, Salvation and presence. Similarly, whenever we gather together in prayer, we acknowledge our need, we acknowledge our dependence upon him, that we're powerless. But this is what happens whenever God responds. Notice God's doing the talking here. The, the instrument is this Levite, but ultimately it's God's promise to us. And his promise is one of salvation. You and I need to hear that every week, don't we? Like I said earlier, I doubt these things are true sometimes, or I forget that they're true. I mean, hell is real. God's wrath is real, but Christ is real. His atonement is real. He really died 2,000 years ago in Palestine outside of Jerusalem. He really rose again. He really ascended. He's really seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's been given all power and authority to forgive every single one of you of your sins. That's true. The Lord is our salvation. Completely and fully, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Comfort, tidings of comfort and a presence that I am with you to the end of the age. Ultimately, our enemy, our biggest enemy is not some horde, it's not politics. The same enemy, the, or the biggest enemy that Jehoshaphat knew they faced was not really even the Moabites. 
the biggest enemy God's people have always faced is our own sin and God's wrath against us. But the promise we have in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is one of the forgiveness of all of our sins for his sake. Later on, thousands of years later, in Matthew chapter nine, verse two, we read that whenever some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed, Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, take heart. In other words, don't be afraid anymore. Fear not, my son, your sins are forgiven. And every week we hear the gospel preached. That should be amazing to you and me. We're forgiven again for Christ's sake. Jesus also said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he says, our eyes are on you. And Jesus says, salvation is found by simply looking at the one that God's raised up, receiving the gift that he gives to every single one of us and looking to the Son and trusting in him and knowing he did it all for us. That's what salvation is. Faith is a little child. Well, the promise of God comes, and notice the connection. Prayer leads us, it shows our need, and then we get to the promise of the gospel that we get to hear every single Sunday from this pulpit and that we sing about. But this leads then into praise, doesn't it? Notice what happens right after this in verse 17, or no, excuse me, uh, verse 18. As soon as the word is proclaimed, what does Jehoshaphat do? Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Right away, first of all, they respond gratefully. <laughs> right away. The gospel comes to them, the promise of God's salvation, tidings of comfort, of a victory to come. And there's this beautiful contrast. On the one hand, some of the people fall on their faces before God, and on the other hand, some of them stand up to praise. And as, a, as you fast forward a little bit, you see this same pattern even in Revelation. We're told the elders, whenever they uh, hear, whenever they're in God's presence, they fall on their faces before God, but then God's people, the multitude, stand with palm branches to praise God. So both of this, I don't know exactly what it means, but there's this, this mixture of awesome reverence falling on our face before God, but also joyful and also grateful acknowledgement that we get to stand in God's presence and not be consumed and to praise his name. Jehoshaphat and all Judah and all the Levites are amazed by grace. We sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But notice the opening two words, amazing grace. What that means is grace should never be taken for granted. You don't deserve grace. You do not deserve it. You did nothing to buy it. You did nothing to get it. God didn't look at you and say, I think I'm gonna give grace to this person because they've done me a good turn. 
God is no man's debtor. He doesn't owe you and I anything. It's grace. It's amazing, surprising grace. Every time you and I sing praise to God in this room together with the people of God, I think in our minds we should be reminded that grace should be always surprising to us. Always marvelous, right? We've seen marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. And there's also a, a hymn where eventually it's called How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And eventually one of the, the verses, it's talking about the fact that there's this feast been gathered, this meal that has been called together by God. And then we ask ourselves that question at the end, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was, why was my heart made to hear your voice when thousands make a reckless choice and rather starve than come? Why, was my, why did my ears hear that voice and believe the promise when others haven't? It's amazing grace. And Judah and Jehoshaphat and the Levites, they are amazed. Some of them fall on their faces before God in his gracious, awesome presence. But others of the Levites, because it's very important to note that at this time, there were specific Levites who were appointed to a music ministry in the temple. And these are the Kohathites, the Korahites, and their job then is to stand up and confess, acknowledge, tell truth about who God is in song. And they praise the Lord, and I love what they did. It says they sang it loudly, full of joy. Grateful singing is what the Lord wants from our hearts because of his grace that we've been given. But second of all, not simply grateful praise, but confident praise faithful, believing praise. Notice what they do right away. They don't doubt at all God's promise here. They rose early in the morning. They don't wait and sleep in. They get up right away because God's promised them the victory. And they go out in the morning into the wilderness of Tekoa. When they went out, look what Jehoshaphat does. He says, hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his, promise, his prophets and you will succeed. Believe Reminds me of Jesus whenever after his resurrection. He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. And Jehoshaphat says, believe in the Lord. And then what does he do? When he had taken counsel with the people, he, the king, appointed those who were to sing to the Lord. Now this is very interesting because earlier in, two, in one Chronicles, David specifically is the, as the king is the one who appoints the people who are to sing praise to God. Um, David is the one who picks the choir, who picks the Levites who are to do the music ministry and organizes them. You can read all about this in 1 Chronicles. And just now, similarly, the son of David, Jehoshaphat, is the one who appoints those who are to sing the praise of God here uh, and praise him in holy attire. And notice what they do. They are to go before the army. Now, that is, is pretty interesting. If you and I were to put together an army, would you put a group of singers at the front? No. Let's put a choir at the front of the U.S. Marine Corps. That wouldn't happen. But that's what God chose to do. Puts the choir at the very front. And they go before the army confidently. And they sing this 
simple, short, but also profound and constantly repeated song in the Old Testament. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. John Gill says this, that when Jehoshaphat puts the singers before the army, it says, to sing his praise and give him glory as if the victory was already completed, it being so sure. If you were to look up this phrase, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever, you'll see that phrase repeated many times in one and two Chronicles also in the Psalms, and then also after the exile with Ezra. And um, it's this constant refrain. And I think the refrain of the Old Testament should be the refrain of our hearts too. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. His steadfast love is his unflinching, unfailing, undeviating devotion and commitment and loyalty to your salvation. He will never leave us He will never forsake us, and his mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love, and notice what he says, it endures. Now, my love, sometimes for my children, it seems the enduring part seems to be um, sometimes not what it should be, and I'm sure their love for me is sometimes not enduring as it should be. But God's love endures all of us. It is infinite, matchless grace. And it endures forever. That's the hope of Israel. That's the hope of Judah. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. We have won the victory. And they go forth confidently. Do you and I sing as if the victory has already been completed? We're an army band when we gather together to sing. We're the armies of the Lamb. And our, the lamb has conquered already. When we sing, sometimes it is appropriate to sing when we're sad and we see psalms like that, but also there should always be this confident undercurrent. We have won. We have the victory. Lastly, also, it's a scriptural song. We give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. This song is a scriptural phrase, and I think this is worth pointing out. They sing the song that had been sung so often before in scripture. This was sung at the dedication of the temple with Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, 3. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. David, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And likewise, whenever we pray Or when we praise God, we can do no better than take the words of God back to him. Whenever you pray to God, do you use the terms and the words of scripture? I'm not saying you can only use those. Or when we praise, do you use the words of scripture? Because we can use, we want to make sure that all of our prayers and all of our praise, all of our response back to God is scriptural, just as what we want to hear from him in his word, we want to respond back in a scriptural way. So they sing gratefully, confidently, scripturally. And we see what happens in verse 22. They begin to sing in praise, and this is fascinating. Whenever they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against their enemies. So they're going out singing, and as they begin to sing, what happens? The Lord defeats all of their enemies. And it sounds a lot, again, like Moses at the Red Sea because we're told uh, later on in verse 24, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped, 
Remind you, whenever the Egyptians, after they had been defeated by the Lord at the Red Sea, their bodies washed up on the ground and not one of them was left. The Lord makes a complete victory over all of our enemies. As Christians, we gather every first day of the week. And we do this because it reminds us of Christ's resurrection. Every Sunday is really resurrection day. Every Sunday really is Easter. And you remember that the first resurrection day was amazing. It was amazing grace. The Lord who had died was now alive we see the praise of God's people. We see that when Jesus appeared to him, they came and they took hold of his feet. They were so surprised and shocked and wonderfully marveling at grace. They were full of gratitude and joy. There was also a confidence about them. They would say this phrase, the Lord has risen indeed, in truth, in reality, and has appeared to Simon. He really did rise from the grave. But also they embraced the word of God. It was scriptural. You remember that those disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember whenever they encounter this strange visitor who talks to them and then opens up the scriptures to them. And whenever they hear Christ talk to them, they say, and and he appears to them and they realize who he was. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And similarly, as you and I, every week, We pray to God together, bringing all of our needs to him. We hear his promise in the gospel of forgiveness reminded to us from God to you and me. And then in response to that, praise has a special emphasis, I think, upon the fact that all that we have needed, we have been freely given. Everything we lack, he has supplied. All that we suffer, he will comfort us with. And we respond in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in the word of God, we're told to address each other with the word of God. So every single time you come to church, you have, to, you have a job to do, and that is to address the word of God to each other, to sing to each other. And I pray that as, not simply as we hear God's word spoken to us from the pulpit, but also as we hear God's word spoken to us by each other, that our hearts would burn within us that we would be amazed by grace in Christ again. And that we would, sometimes also, by the way, you come here and you may not feel like singing. Sometimes you've had a hard week or you've lost somebody dear to you or you've struggled with this or that. The wonderful thing about this aspect of our worship is that even if you can't sing, we will sing for you. And as we sing, as we address the word of God to you, we pray and trust that the spirit of God is putting Christ in your heart to strengthen you, to uphold you, to sustain you. And it's a means of grace. It's a means of of wonderful strength to God's people. And ultimately, we look forward to that last day. In Revelation chapter seven, we see what worship looks like in heaven. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, we could say clothed in holy attire, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together and thank God for his goodness to us and ask him to apply this to our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message of promise and gospel to us. We pray that like the saints of old, who whenever faced with trials and problems in this life, but ultimately the great spiritual problems that we have of sin, death, hell, and the devil, that like them we would bring in prayer all of our burdens to you, but that also as you speak to us in your promise of the gospel, that we would believe it, receive it, and respond with grateful, amazed praise. I pray that as we sing this closing song, that our hearts would burn within us as we hear the word of Christ addressed to each other as we sing to you. For Christ's sake, amen.